Um, so, we're doing this five below view the story, following this story of Emmanuel. Um, Emmanuel, remember, means God with us. Uh, the whole Bible tells a story. There's a flow from beginning to end. And we're trying to follow it through. Obviously, you can't cover everything when you're doing a Bible overview. Um, hence, selecting this theme of God with us. And we saw last week one of the repeated phrases throughout Scripture is, I will be their God and they will be my people. And so throughout this series, we're going to have two focuses. One is uh, getting the story straight. So where, particularly once we get into the Old Testament, you know, we know Genesis, maybe through to about the story of Abraham, or maybe even through to, to Jacob, maybe the Exodus. But after that, we can tend to get a little bit hazy on the story. So hopefully the, the story will become clear over the next few weeks. Um, but also, we'll follow this theme of God's relationship with his people. And just down there on the sheet, you'll see a little diagram. Um, kind of summary of where we were last time. We saw God needed nothing. The, the Bible doesn't begin with creation. The Bible begins with God in the beginning. God, he doesn't need anything. He's not short of anything. Um, but he creates out of love. And of course, he creates out of nothing. And we saw that creation is a bit like a house. It's got these three stories. Um, the heaven above, the earth beneath, and the waters below. You might recognize that language from the second, second commandment. Don't make an image of anything in heaven above, earth beneath, or the waters below. It's kind of three-story house. And more specifically, uh, we saw that the world that he made kind of had these three zones. This is going to be really important going forwards. Uh, there's the garden in Eden. Not the garden of Eden. The garden in Eden. There's the land of Eden. And then there's the kind of outer world. So that little diagram on there shows you the three zones. The garden in Eden, the land, and then the world. And you'll see at the top, I put a little compass points on it. Again, that'll come back west and east. East is the way out of the garden. So I, I should have made that more clear on the diagram. But east is going away from the garden, as we'll see a bit later. We saw, too, that God formed this relationship with Adam and Eve. It's often called the covenant of works, where he said to them, look, I've given you all this fruit, all this, um, what, everything in creation, in fact, I've given to you to rule over, look after. The deal is you just need to obey me. Don't take the fruit and do what I tell you. Okay, so there's no gospel in the garden. There's no talk of mercy or forgiveness. It's God just being totally fair. Okay, just playing fair, justice. I've done all this for you. You've got a perfect world. I've made you sinless. Go for it. Enjoy it. Of course, it all goes wrong. Now, you don't need me to tell you the story of the fall, so I don't want to take time um, explaining it. Uh, you know Eve takes the fruit. So we're going to do some group work straight away, round tables. If you read, if I, I'm going to read Genesis 1, um, 3, 1, 7, and then you're going to do that little discussion before we try and get through to Genesis 11 by the end of our time together. So Genesis 3, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat any of the tree from any tree in the garden? And the woman, no, she's not Eve yet, she's just a woman, it's Ish. I'm sorry, Isha. Ish is a man and Isha is a woman. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. <coughs> and the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. By the way, just store that language for later in Esther. Okay, Good for food, delight to the eyes, to be desired. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There we go, three questions round tables. We're only going to have five minutes on this. Um, why does Eve take the fruit? There's more than one reason. Why does she take the fruit? Is she being a legalist or a liberal? In other words, um, if there's sort of two ways of rejecting God, one is saying, I don't need your rules, I can live how I like, doesn't matter. And the other one is the kind of works, righteousness, legalist. Um, which is she being, and why? And then, why do you think it's Adam? Everywhere else in the Bible, Adam basically gets blamed for the fall, not Eve, even though she took the fruit. Why, do you reckon? If the second question doesn't make sense, just do, do the third instead. Okay, over to you. Okay. Um, we don't always go all the way through all the questions with feedback, because it just takes, takes all morning, I'm afraid. But some of the things you might have spoken about, taking the fruit... Um, I mean, it's desirable, isn't it? It's there in verse 6. So she thinks it's going to be an upgrade. She thinks she's going to become like God. Um, sorry, I've got a small child. There we go. Okay, you watch. Um, she's going to get mad, or do you want to? Do you mind going to mummy? I know. Okay. What a dad. What a dad. Um, that second question I think is really interesting is she being a legalist or a liberal typically we think a liberal so as in a liberal someone who's throwing off God's war and breaking free and she obviously is doing that but there's a sense in which she's also being a, a legalist um, a legalist is someone who um, thinks that um, by their own efforts they can achieve succeed and a legalist is also someone um, who has a very kind of harsh view of God um, it's all about performance, doing this, doing that. Now, Eve is bi- Eve is trying by her own efforts to kind of, um, inverted commas, save herself, okay, improve herself, rescue herself. Um, and she has both a view of God that says, oh, I'll get away with it. It won't matter. I surely won't die. Um, and at the same time, a view of God that is, oh, he's such this horrible tyrant. Um, he's not really good. Um, he's a kind of a harsh master, not a kind giver. So he, she is at the same time both a kind of legalist and a, a liberal trying to break free. Uh, why is Adam primarily blamed for the fall? What did you say on this one? Any ideas? Why is it Adam? By the way, sorry, just on that previous question, if that's kind of sounds very odd, I'd really recommend a book called The Whole Christ. If you've never read it, it's a brilliant read on exactly that stuff. And it's so heartwarming on the goodness of God. So there you go. If you want to... New Year recommendation read the whole Christ. Anyway, what about Adam? Why is Adam blamed for the fall, not Eve primarily? No. Yeah. He's been told to have like Yep. Okay, so he's been given the, the commands. The commands we kind of read it earlier on in the, in the chapter have been given to him before she's made. In fact, she didn't even get given the command not to eat the fruit directly by God. When God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in chapter 2, verse uh, 16, 17, 
Eve hasn't even been created. So she hears that from Adam. He's like the little prophet for God. And of course, he's the, he's the king. He's the one who's given the command to guard and work the garden. So verse 15 of chapter 2, work it and keep it. Keep it means to guard it. Um, he is meant to be protecting his, his bride. Again, she's not alive at that stage. She doesn't exist yet. Um, and he's totally complicit, isn't it? It's not like Eve has sneaked off and done it in the corner without him realising while he's feeding the, the dog or whatever. Um, they're there in verse uh, 6. The end of verse 6, her husband was with her. Rather than protecting her, he should have stamped on the serpent's head, shouldn't he? Okay, that was his job. Crush the serpent's head, drive it out of the garden, pass the test. But instead, he kind of gambles with his wife's life. He's the king. He's meant to be the guardian, the priest that protects the sanctuary. And instead, he's like, oh, okay, let's see what happens. You, you know. So Adam is always blamed. He is ultimately responsible. It's just worth storing that because sometimes one of the critiques of the Bible is, oh, all the wrong in the world, all the sin in the world, it's all blamed on women. Um, but it isn't in Scripture. It's blamed on Adam, actually. Um, Eve, Eve took the fruit, sure. She's guilty, but he gets the, the long-term blame. Um, and that's why it's um, Adam that gets uh, called out in verse 9. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? you know, what's going on? Not the man and the woman. Okay, She is guilty. She's not innocent. It's not a mistake. But he's the one who takes the primary blame. Okay, now that story I imagine is really familiar to you if you've been around church any length of time. So let's just try and press on a little bit into what happens uh, next. Um this first fall, Genesis 3, on the sheets, I mean Genesis 3, the first fall. Um, it's in the garden, isn't it? They're in the garden when they do this. So in that middle land, the centre land, the highest land. It's directly against God, very obviously. And it's followed instantly by an attempt at self-salvation. Verse 7. As soon as they sin, they know they're naked. Okay, they realise their, their shame. And they sow these fig leaves. Okay, we'll try and cover ourselves up. Okay, it's a picture of trying to cover up their, their sin, in other words, their shame. Self-salvation. And so when God draws near, remember that's our big theme, God draws near, Emmanuel draws near in verses 8 through 10. He walks in the cool of the day. They hear him coming. They hide. Okay, the Emmanuel principle has become a threat. Okay, God is not someone to be welcomed. God is not someone's presence who I desire. God is someone I should flee from. Okay, that's what sin does to us, doesn't it? It makes us think, if God draws near, I need to, to leg it. And indeed, he comes and he does curse. So it, um, the rest of the chapter, you get a, a bunch of curses. And they fall in their respective realms. I haven't got time to spend loads of time on this because we covered it uh, two or three terms ago when we looked at the idea of what the Bible says about men and women. But it's interesting, isn't it? When the, the curse is on the man, uh, verse 17 onwards, to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, eaten the tree which I commanded you shall not eat of it, curses the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. In other words, work is going to be really hard from now onwards, sweaty and difficult. The work curse is given directly to Adam, not to them generically, humanity, but to Adam. And that's because Adam is the one who'd been given the command to work in the first place. Adam's kind of zone is kind of outside the garden. We, we looked at it last year, providing, protecting. He's the kind of working one. Whereas the curses on Eve in verse 16 are about the home, children. I'll multiply your pain in childbearing and pain you should bring forth children. Um, they're all relational because her zone, if you like, is, is, is the home. Okay, she's made in the garden. Um, her name is mother of the living. 
Um, so God curses them in their respective zones. Um, we said this a year ago. It doesn't mean women can't work. It doesn't mean men aren't meant to help with the kids. Okay, don't get the wrong idea. Um, but there is a kind of priority of um, in that married relationship of, of kind of which how it works. Uh, and the curses fall, unsurprisingly, in respect to the the, the callings they both had. Um, is that the end of it for all of them? Are Adam and Eve in heaven? Maybe we should have had that as a discussion question. Well, in one sense, of course, no one no, ultimately knows, but I should think so. Um, just look what happens. Chapter 3, verse 15, often called the first preaching of the gospel. God is speaking to the serpent here. I will put enmity. In other words, I'll make an, you and the woman enemies. And between your offspring and her offspring. So at that stage, it's sort of plural, like all the descendants of Eve are going to be enemies of um, the devil's plans. But then it, it zooms down very explicitly singular. He, so one man that's going to be descended from Eve, will bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, God says to the serpent, says to Satan, your head is going to get kicked in by one of Adam's, one of Eve's children, although you will wound him in the process. Of course, it's a prediction of Christ, who is wounded by Satan. He's killed, but he's not destroyed by Satan. But at the cross, um, Christ defeats, destroys, seals Satan's fate. So there's three things there. There's a promise of rescue in chapter 315. There's then a profession of faith. How does Adam and Eve respond? Verse 20 of chapter 3. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. As I said earlier, she's just been Isha so far, just woman, but man and woman. Um, but now he says he renames it, gives her the name Eve which means mother of all the living now given the last thing he heard from God is <coughs> verse 19 you shall return to the ground for out of it you were taken you are dust and to dust you shall return literally the last words he hears are you're going to die and then he names his wife mother of the living uh, why? well because he believes the promise that death isn't going to be final he believes the promise of 3.15 that one of Eve's descendants will crush the serpent. There is a, um, a promise of life basically there. It's very shadowy. I know that, but it's there. So he seems to profess faith and then promise of rescue, profession of faith, and then provision of a covering. Next verse, 3.21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Adam and Eve tried to clothe themselves with um, fig leaves. Uh, in 3.7 but now God comes and clothes them um, he covers over their shame and interestingly he does so not this time with leaves but with animal skins okay, Skins. something has died in order that they might be clothed God has put something to death in order that they might live again a little shadowy picture of the, the gospel one day God himself will come in flesh and as man die in order that we might be clothed in his righteousness so it's very shadowy, but, but it's there. And so, if you like, the gospel promises and that the church begins from, I don't know, Genesis 3, verse 20. Um, shadowy form, early days. Who knows quite how much they understood about how it would work, but, but it's there. Um, but, of course, they can't stay in paradise. So, end of the chapter 3, verse 24, God drives out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he places a cherubim. And a flaming sword that turned every way. There is this terrifying kind of um, angelic being 
uh, with a flaming sword, and they're driven out east. So on that diagram, they're going east of Eden, out of the garden. The entrance is on the east. Again, that's going to come back and back and back and back uh, in Scripture. We'll see the tabernacle entrances on the east. We'll see that when they go into the promised land, they go in this weird route round, so they can come in from east to west. So the promised land is like the... Um, like the Garden of Eden, when Jesus begins his ministry, goes round and comes through the River Jordan. So he comes from the east. The wise men come from the east to worship him. You know, to Jesus. Time and time again, geography will have this little message of returning to paradise. Okay, four, first fall. Okay, and that is the main fall. I'm going to want to talk about two other falls though, um, but just let me caveat that a little bit. Um, these next two falls are obviously not in the same category as the first one. The first one is the real big fall. Everything was sinless, now there's sin. But there are, I think, two more falls. And they're in Genesis 4 and then 6. Genesis 4, I'm not going to read it all. But we meet Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. Uh, They sleep together. Cain is the eldest and then Abel the youngest. And maybe you know the story um, that they're all called to bring offerings to God. Perhaps to the gateway of Eden. I mean, it doesn't say that explicitly, but a lot of people reason, well, where do you bring offerings? You've been driven out into the land of Eden. Okay, so they're, they're in the land, but they're not in the garden. Uh, and so quite possibly they bring the offerings to the, you know, the, the entrance to the garden, the entrance to paradise. Um, that's what you'll do later with the temple. The altar will be outside the, the tabernacle with the cherubim sewn into the curtain. So sort of makes sense, but you know, not going to go to stake for that one. Either way, they're meant to bring offerings. For reasons that are much debated, one is acceptable, one isn't. And so Cain kills his brother Abel. And the result is, if you look at chapter 4, verse 16, the result again is exile, driven away from the presence of the Lord. Um, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. In other words, he's driven out away from Eden, further away from God again. Okay, he's moving east again. And this time he's out into the world. Okay, so his, his sin has happened in, in Eden, okay, outside the garden, but in Eden. And he's driven away. Exile again is the punishment. And his sin, of course, it's always against God because any sin is against God. But it's very kind of directly against his brother. Um, he kills him. Uh, Adam and Eve, at the end of the chapter, verse 25 have another son, Seth. And Seth is going to be the, the father. You know those genealogies that weave through the Bible? Um, Seth is going to be the, the one where the godly line kind of is traced through. So Seth is going to be the, the uh, ancestor of Jesus, not Cain. And obviously not Abel because he's, he's dead. Uh, so one guy in heaven, presumably. Abel's in heaven. He- uh, pretty empty, but he's there. Uh, and so Seth's genealogy in chapter 5 is traced right the way through. Okay, we're not going to go through it all unsurprisingly. Um, but it's traced right the way through chapter 5 until our next key character. Chapter 5, verse 28. Uh, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief or rest from our work and the painful toil of our hands. Noah's name basically means rest. Sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. And that brings us to the third of our falls. 
um, and this really strange account in chapter 6. Now, um, there's quite a lot of debate about what's going on here. Let me just read from the beginning of chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the, the land or the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Then Ephelim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted he'd made them on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I'll blot out man who I'm created from the face of the land or face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds in the heavens. For I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found rest. Sorry, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, what on earth is going on there? Who are these sons of God and the daughters of men? Uh, b- best guess, well, if, if I had to hang my hat somewhere at the moment, um, it would be... the it's the godly line so you've got this godly line the sons of God the ones who are kind of expression later in the Bible we're all sons of God isn't it if we have faith in him but the godly line mixing with the daughters of men okay, the kind of worldly types so rather than um, essentially marrying within the church and, and keeping the, you know, the gospel faith alive they are um, intermarrying um, if that's the case it's a sin against the world they're mixing the church and the world um, and there does seem to be a bit of an emphasis there on the whole world has gone wrong. You know, the whole earth is filled with violence. Um, rather than being filled with the image of God. Um, where is it? Uh, where's the filling language? I've lost it. Somewhere in 11 to 13. Um, there we go. Um, chapter 6, verse 13. God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. Okay, so far, filling in the Genesis is meant to be about filling the earth with images of God, going to fill the earth, but it's just filled with violence. Um, some people think that what's gone on with these, <coughs> the sons of God are kind of angels who are marrying human women and having children. I, I mean, I just think it's a bit weird and it doesn't seem that angels could do that, so, but you know, who knows, maybe. Either way, um, mankind is going to be driven into the ultimate exile, not just from the garden, not just from the land, but from the whole world. Everything's going to be blotted out. And so I put a little diagram there. This is why I've sort of called it three falls, albeit the last two are in inverted commas. Um, you know, the first fall, Adam's a sinner. He eats the fruit. It's directly against God. And he's driven into exile from the garden. And then in the land, lots of stuff in chapter four about the land. Cain is a sinner. He kills his brother against his family. And he's driven from the land. And then finally, in chapters 6 through 9, it's, it's the whole world basically is full of sin, uh, whether it's the violence or intermarriage or whatever, but the whole world is full of sin. And so humanity, everything in fact, is going to be wiped off the face of the earth, apart from this one man, Noah. So you can see a kind of pattern to it. But just so we don't end it, we'll do questions in a moment, um, and then should have time to, to pray. But just to finish on a slightly more positive note, Okay, it's all gone downhill until this one man, Noah, this one man, rest. Um, God's plans are never fully derailed, obviously. Okay, his plan to create a world and fill it with human beings isn't going to be off, um, uh, knocked off the tracks just by our rebellion. So 
chapter 6 and verse 16. Look at the plan. Um, God comes to Noah and tells him to make an ark. 6 verse 16. Make a roof for the ark. Finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second and third decks. Now interesting again. Three story ark. Everything's always threes. One, two, three. One, two, three. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything on earth shall die. But I shall establish my covenant with you. Here's that covenant again, that relationship. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And then the famous stuff about um, two of every kind, all the rest of it. So, three-story ark is going to be the vehicle that takes one family through the waters of the old world, through the waters of judgment, and out into the new. Okay, And again, that pattern, taking someone and their family through the waters and into a new world, is going to be one that occurs time and again in the Bible. Um, think Exodus, escape through the waters into the new promised land. Um, uh, crossing the Jordan later on is coming to promised land. Uh, baptism symbolizes exactly that, through the waters and you're a new creation. Here's the kind of prototype of all that. The destruction of the world with water. Indeed, Peter, in Peter's letters in the New Testament, he compares Noah's flood with baptism, very directly. Talks about it as a, as a picture of baptism. And the result of it all, we won't go through all the kind of back and forth of the story of the flood, but skip on to chapter 9, which is where we're going to finish. And we get... Basically, a new world, a new creation. So what does this sound like? Chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Go back to the beginning, aren't we? Here's a new Adam. And he's given a new mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, just like the first Adam was given. Fruitful and multiply. Um, There's a new covenant. We saw it promised in chapter 6. It's brought in 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 verse 12. God said, this is the sign of the covenant. This is the sign of my relationship that I make between you and you, me and you and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud. That's a bow and arrow bow. Um, we, we straight away think rainbow, which is obviously what it is. It does what you look like. But it's not, there's not a special word for a rainbow. It's a bow like a, a war bow. And it's up there in the clouds. I've hung up my weapons, in other words. So it's not just, I mean, it is pretty and all the rest of it and... You know, pots of gold at the end, all the rest of it. But um, it, it, it's a bow. God is saying, I'm going to hang up my bow. Never again will I destroy the earth. And make of this what you will. It's one you can go either way on. Um, some people think there's significance in the way the, you know, the bow, the war bow in the heavens. Which way is it pointing? Which way would the arrow fly, as it were? Up, not down. As in, it's going to be over my life. You know, the arrow that's going to mean that I can rescue the world. It's going to pierce my heart, not yours, ultimately. Um, so some people think there's significance in the in the bow pointing into heaven. Can't prove it one way or another, but it's certainly true theologically, isn't it? Ultimately, it's going to be God's life that means the world is rescued. I quite like it. But, you know. So there we go. Uh, a new Adam, a new mandate, a new covenant. See who the sign's for? Who is the sign for, indeed, in, ultimately? Uh, well, 14, keep reading about the covenant. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that's between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember. 
the everlasting covenant. So actually, the, the way the bow is pictured is not so much for us as for God. Now, of course, secondarily, it's for us because he's telling us about it. But, it. but it's described as God saying, I will see the sign and remember. This is a memorial to me not to destroy um, the earth. So the promise is, yep, never again will everything be wiped out. This creation plan will succeed. And it looks so good until chapter 9, verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, okay? He becomes a farmer, a gardener. He's a real new Adam. And he planted a vineyard, okay? Great, gardens and stuff again. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay naked in his tent. New God, a new Adam, and a new fall. Okay, Adam, uh, Noah is not sinless. He's not going to be this perfect saviour. He's not the one who's going to bring ultimate rest. And you get this story about one of the boys looking at his nakedness and the other two not of his sons. And the one who comes out of it in kind of credit, as it were, is Shem. Right at the end, um, Noah's son Shem. Uh, verse 26. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan, who's one of the other servants, uh, so the other sense, um, Ham. So Shem, Ham, and Japheth have three sons. Um, Ham has a son, Canaan, from whom obviously the Canaanites, all the people who are going to live in the land, are descended. But Shem is the one through whom the godly line that leads to Jesus will be traced. So Shem, and you can hear about Semitic, you know, the Jews of the Semite, the Semitic people. Shem, yeah, that's where it's from. Okay, so he's, he's the father of Jewish people. Um, and ultimately, Verse 25, cursed be Canaan. So all his descendants, and those are going to be the kind of Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, they're going to be cursed, and Shem, um, his descendants, are going to be raised up. Um, Hence, chapter 10, leading all the way through to Babel and the call of Abraham, is the story of Shem, the line of Shem. And this godly line continues even amongst the sin of the world. There we go, bit of a gallop. Um, Any questions? We'll pick things up. Yeah. Um, no, just a minute. What? <laughs> no, uh, it's really significant. You know, you said there's um, a new mandate. Yeah. So filling the earth is repeated, but subduing the earth is Yeah. And I just wondered, um, is, that, is that like, because you're no longer meant to do the earth, obviously there's a, it's difficult to do the earth now with curses, but is it, you should no longer do it, or is it just, God? I don't, yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> what are your thoughts? <laughs> is this something you're teaching this week, Wayne Charles? In like Doncaster? Um, <laughs> it's just such a switch. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's what you need to do. Just hedge it like I've done all the way through. Something, things, something like. That. Um, some people make, as you very well know, some people make a lot of it, and um, the cultural mandate's gone. All that stuff about subduing the earth's gone. All we need to do now is evangelism. Everything else is going to waste. I personally don't particularly buy that. I don't think there's a massive significance in it. And although the exact wording isn't, um, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast. There's clearly a rule thing still going on. Into your hands they're given. There's still a dominion thing going on. Um, uh, uh, In fact, it's extended. So now there is capital punishment given into his hands. Um, So... Um, whatever you think about the issue now, which we're definitely not getting into, at the very least then, God instituted capital punishment and put it into the hands of 
Noah man to direct it. You'll see that later in Israel. Again, park the political stuff for now. Um, so I, I don't think there's a massive significance in, in it. Maybe there are shades of it's not going to be as easy as it was before. Um, but everything else, it's a bit like um, we don't get the command about marriage repeated. Well, it doesn't mean marriage is gone. Um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. But I, I, what I think is true is that ultimately the dominion thing, whilst we do it badly for generations, is only it only lands ultimately on Christ. So I think that is true. All power and all dominion is given to him. So I think that's definitely true. And maybe that's why it's there, I don't think. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> Israel does seem to. The way they're the land, so it's a bit of a. Yeah. 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 Is it theologically possible to go off the ground? Obviously, in our understanding, we're going yeah. to yeah. Like, go back and change this. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, yeah, so um, um, obviously you have to. I mean, the Bible says God regretted something, so you don't want to undo that. But you're dead right. Elsewhere, in fact, oh, I don't know if I can find the reference quick enough. Um, when um, in Samuel, when he makes Saul king, and it all goes wrong. Um, God says, I regret I've made Samuel king. Uh, sorry, Saul king, Samuel. Um, and then, um, oh, I think it's in order 1, 1 Samuel 15. Um, or is it 16? Oh, I don't think I can find it quick enough. But in the same chapter, um, God says, I regret I've made you king. And then he says, I'm not a man that I would regret same word um, and so there's a sense in which God regrets and a sense in which he doesn't um, I think as you're rightly picking up I suspect this is what's behind it God isn't saying um, whoops my life did not see that coming uh, what a total mistake I'm really sorry I've stuffed up Let me, like we would regret something um, because we know from other stuff in the Bible that he doesn't make mistakes he can't lie he knows the future he's sovereign so um, you can't take everything that we associate with human regret and kind of shove it up into heaven on God but you don't want to so then you say okay what does it mean it's striking how strong the language is so it must mean wow these people are terrible that's how terrible all this is and so the bible will use what are sometimes called anthropomorphisms of God or anthropopathisms describing his emotions Um, and just like when we read that God is a rock we take some of what we know about rocks and say God's like that, like he's unchanging, he's steady, you can rely on him. But we don't take everything. He's not made of granite, he's not cold or, you know. So similarly with, with kind of, if, frankly, with all language about God, you always have to do a bit of yes and no with it. And regret would be a very strong example of that. Um, yeah, it's a great question. It's also a good example of when you try and cover the whole Bible, you just hit everything that you say. So, <laughs> uh, we'll skip through. Um, how are we doing? I think we ought to wrap up. Um, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll go through. Father in heaven, we thank you so much. You didn't just give up on us. Um, that although you could have quite justly left us in, in judgment, uh, wiped us out, uh, instead you've continued to be gracious and patient and rescue. Um, we pray you give us hearts that receive that grace, that mercy with thanksgiving. 
uh, with faith. Give us faith that grows, we pray. And might you strengthen that faith even this morning as we hear about you again and uh, come before you in worship. Renew our hearts in grace, mercy, uh, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.